Welcome to Round Rock Church of Christ. We're glad you're listening. If you're in the Austin area, we'd love to have you join us this Sunday at 8.30 or 10 a.m. Or you can check us out and watch online at roundrockchurch.us. May God bless you as you seek Him, and may He use this message to give you exactly what you need. Good morning. My name is Candace Banks, and again, I'm going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 54. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. If you'd like to go ahead and get your Bibles ready, Isaiah chapter 54, verses 1 through 17. Sing, O childless woman, you who have never given birth. Break into loud and joyful song, O Jerusalem, you who have never been in labor. For the desolate woman now has more children than the woman who lives with her husband, says the Lord. Enlarge your house, build an addition, spread out your home. You should spare no expense, for you will soon be bursting at the seams. Your descendants will occupy other nations and resettle the ruined cities. Fear not, you will no longer live in shame. Do not be afraid. There is no more disgrace for you. You will no longer remember the shame of your youth, nor the sorrows of your widowhood. For your creator is your husband. The Lord of heaven's armies is his name. He's your redeemer, the holy one, the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you back from your grief, as though you are a young wife abandoned by her husband, says the Lord. For a brief moment, I abandoned you, but with great compassion, I will take you back. In a burst of anger, I turn my face for a little while, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Just as I swore in the time of Noah that I would never again flood or cover the earth with water, so now I swear that I never again will be angry and punish you. For the mountains may move and the hills disappear. Even then, my faithful love for you will remain. My covenant of blessing will never be broken, says the Lord who has mercy on you. O storm-battered city, troubled and desolate, I will rebuild you with precious jewels and your foundations from lapis lazuli. I will make your towers of sparkling rubies, your gates of shining gems, and your walls of precious stones. I will teach all your children, and they will enjoy great peace. You will be secure under a a government that is both just and fair. Your enemies will stay far away. You will live in peace, and terror will not come near. If any nation rises to come against you, it's not because I sent them. Whoever attacks you will go down in defeat. I have created the blacksmith who fans the coals beneath the forge and makes the weapons of destruction, and I have created the armies that destroy. But in that coming day, no weapon turned against you will succeed. You will silence every voice that is raised up against you. These benefits are enjoyed by the servants of the Lord. Their vindication will come from me, for I, the Lord, have spoken. Amen. You guys may be seated. Thank you very much for reading. How's everybody doing this morning? 
Good, good. I'm excited to be here. We're going to jump right into prayer and then we'll just dive right in. Dear God, oh man, we are, we are thankful for who you are. Um, we're just excited to be here in this moment. Your word reminds us that where two or three are gathered, you are there also. So we just want to recognize the fact that you are here and present in this room. We have come to make much of your name. Um, Father, in this moment, I'm asking that you speak through me. Um, as your word says, if I don't speak, if someone else didn't speak, the, the rocks would cry out. Um, and so this morning, may the rocks not take our place. Um, but we also know that you are for us and not against. So um, will you give words of comfort? Will you prepare our hearts to receive your truth? Um, Father, we need vision this morning. We need to really see what it is you have for us. Uh, we love you and we need you. It is in your son's name we pray. Amen. Um, I want to start off by letting you know that in fifth grade, I got suspended from my elementary school. And you might be wondering why would a minister who's visiting uh, come in and let us know about the time that he got asked to leave school. But I want to let you know that story. As a young fifth grade lad, I, um, I, was, uh, I wasn't as developed with my relationship with the Lord yet. Um, and so I was at school and I was with one of my friends and we just thought it was a good idea. One of our friends named Nick. So we've got Nick and we've got Chris. Me and Chris, we were friends with Nick. Um, and Nick we found out had a crush on a girl, and we just wanted to know which girl it was uh, just to make sure that we were all on the same page, everybody had their, no one had their wires crossed, and so Chris and I decided that the best idea was to just ask Nick, Nick, who, who, who do you like? For some reason that day, Nick decided that Nick did not want to tell us who he liked, and so at that moment, Chris and I looked at each other laughing and joking, and we decided that the best thing to do would be to literally jack up Nick against the wall and say, no, you're going to tell us. And he started to laugh, and I started to laugh, and our friends started to laugh. And the next thing I know, my one friend Chris pulls out a plastic knife from lunch. And for some reason, in fifth grade, we thought that was funny to pull it out. At this exact moment, I'm jacking up Nick. Chris has a plastic knife out. At that exact moment, uh, the teacher opens up the door into the bathroom, and we're up against the wall. And I have uh, uh, Nick's shirt in my hand, and the other guy has the plastic knife. She looks at us, we look at her, we knew it was over, right to the principal's <laughs> office, suspended. That's, that is a true story. And I only tell you that story to let you know that I've never quite felt that feeling before. I've always wondered, what would it feel like to be Nick that day, uh, to be jacked up against the wall? But quite frankly, just about two weeks ago, I felt like Nick. I was praying about what passage God wanted me to preach, and Isaiah 54 came and, and I read it and it just grabbed my heart and I really felt like Nick grabbed up against the wall with a plastic knife up to my neck letting me know that this is exactly where we needed to be this morning. Uh, there are seven billion people on earth and here we are in this room together. Perhaps it has all been divinely appointed by God for us to meet here in this place and I don't know you but I do know the human condition and so I can imagine that there are all sorts of emotions going on in this room. Some people are overjoyed because God has done some things and you've seen him work. Some people are on the hills of grief. Some people are on the hills of heartache and disappointment. So we all find ourselves at different places, but here we find this text. And you might miss it in Isaiah 54, the first verse. Rejoice, childless one, 
who did not give birth. See, in our culture, to be barren uh, is, is still a grief. It's still a, a, a deep pain. And there are those here this morning who might be in that space. God has comfort for that. God has hope for that situation. But in our society, we, I feel like we handle that predicament with a little bit more composure than has traditionally been done. In Eastern cultures, in the Hebrew culture, in ancient cultures, to be barren was considered to be a curse. It was considered to have absolutely nothing. You would basically be cut off. You would, you would be an outcast. It was a very difficult thing. And so we find this text addressed to those, those who have had their heart absolutely ripped apart, who have been hoping for something, who have had something placed in their spirits by God. You have been expecting, and suddenly, when it came time to deliver that thing, when it came time to give birth, here you are. And suddenly, the moment you thought lead to great excitement has led to your great disappointment. And so, sure, you may not be physically barren, but I imagine there is some spiritual barrenness in this room this morning. There might be some spiritual barrenness. And if that's the case, then this is good news, because this is actually written to those who have been spiritually barren. This is actually written to those who have had a tough time falling asleep at night. This is written to those who have had tough times eating because they've been so sad. This is what this text is for. Rejoice, childless one who did not give birth. Burst into song and shout, you who have not been in labor for the children of the desolate one will be more. And I find it interesting that today, November 28th, is the beginning of what we call Advent. The four weeks before we get to Christmas, and Advent is known for two things. One, the nativity of Christ, but it's also expectant waiting for the second coming of Christ. And so every year, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of believers gather. And for these four weeks, turn their attention to what is really real. Yes, we've been going through a lot the whole year, but it's this time of the year where collectively we get help in being reminded that this is not how our story ends. And so it's against that backdrop that we find this text, that we find these promises for us this morning. And it's in this space, as we said, in the ancient cultures, it was considered a grief. And we find it time and time in Scripture, right? We find Hannah's song, right? And Samuel, she's so excited because after a season of barrenness, she has finally been given a son and she's overjoyed so much so that she has to pin what we now call Hannah's song. Don't you remember Sarah and Hagar? Hagar is, is, is lording over the fact that Sarah has not been able to bear a child. It is deep grief to Sarah. We find that in scripture time and time again reminding us of deep grief, reminding us of deep pain. It's in that space See, I want you to know that this word, this promise, this encouragement is coming in the midst of the barrenness. The word is given when you're still in the desert. When you're still in the wilderness, that's when God pulls up on you and says, hey, wait a second, I've got something to say about this situation as well. Perhaps that isn't the end of the story. It's in the middle of your desperateness. It's in the middle of your pain. That's when he'll speak. That's where we need to tune our ears. 
And I love it. And I want to remind us about the nature of God's word. When God says something, he's not describing. So when we say things, we describe, right? If I were to talk about light, I would be describing the word light. When God says light, light happened. God said, let there be light. And what happened? Light. There is something about the nature of God's communication. When he speaks, what he says it will happen. As the word says, no word that comes out of his mouth will return to him null and void. If he said it, he's going to accomplish it. And so it's letting you know, don't, don't even worry about it. Number one, I know it's probably going to sound crazy because you're going to hear the promise while you're still having to look at the difficulty of your circumstance. But he's letting you know that's the map. That's the blueprint. That's how I do it. I always do it that way. I pull up on you when you're still sad. When you look around in your life and everything has fallen apart and now you find yourself in a barren space, what do you do then? If we don't know the promises, we'll be trying to fight a war without any weapons. That's why it's important for us to know the promise. I remember as a young child going to swimming lessons and I got to tell you, I did not believe they were telling me that somehow if I jumped into this water that was clearly permeable, like I could put my hand in it, they were letting me know that if I just relaxed, this water would support me. Nothing about that made sense to my young mind. So much so to the point I said, I, I don't even think I want to be a part of this. They, I pull up the swimming lessons and they start out with a lie. I don't want to be a part of this. No, thank you. Let alone the instructor grabs me and throws me into the deep end. I'm still scarred by that experience, by the way. That's not how you should start off any first swimming lessons, but that is exactly what happened. But I remember the only reason why I ever learned how to swim is that against all apparent evidence that it could not be true. It was the confidence in my swim instructor's voice that gave me the, ever gave me the confidence to actually attempt to swim. Even though every time I looked at the water, I would throw something in it and a penny would drop to the bottom of it. And they're telling me, I'm going to float. It won't always make sense what he says. But the promise is the promise. And the first step is knowing what is the promise. And so we find God speaking to us in the middle of our barrenness, in the middle of our Advent seasons where we're still expectantly waiting for what he's promised. It's in the middle of this space where he's letting us know, as a matter of fact, not only are you not going to be barren forever, <laughs> I'm going to do something for you in such a manner that when we do the math at the end, it's not going to make sense. Is going to be as if you never went through the season of barrenness at all. Aren't we reminded in the word where it says, I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten? It's a promise that's what he does, and it's against the, black, the backdrop of our circumstance that God exposes himself. Have you ever seen precious diamonds when the diamond handler or the jeweler comes out to show you your diamonds? It often puts it against a black velvet backdrop. It's because the black velvet backdrop help draws out the light and the refraction in the diamond so that it actually sparkles a bit more in the same way. God will put you in a season of black velvet so that his diamond hand and his diamond love and his diamond faithfulness can show up in your life. 
And it's in that space where he shows up. It's in the wilderness. It's in the, bar- the your barrenness. It's while you're waiting. It's while you're expectantly waiting. That's when he'll do what he promised. He says, don't be afraid. You won't be put to shame. And I'm here to tell you that this morning. Don't be afraid. Fear not. Have courage. For your God is good for it. And he says, what I'm doing for you, even though it looks like you're barren now, I'm going to do something for you in such a way that you just won't be blessed. Here we find him talking about your descendants. See, in, 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 in an agricultural culture that would oftentimes have to move and change, we, we, here is where we find tents talked about. In verse 3, it's talking about tents. It says, let your tent pegs go down deep into the ground. Letting you know, hey, I'm going to bring you to a place where we're actually going to settle. We're not going to keep pulling these tents up and going from place to place. My question to you this morning is, where are you bearing? Where are you expectantly waiting for God to come? And perhaps this is why we have two eyes, so that while we're reading this text, we can keep one of our eyes on the fact that this is a communal blessing, talking to the believers, talking to the new Jerusalem, but it's also talking individually. One of my favorite things to do is watch HGTV. I love home renovation shows. Don't really ask me why, but I actually will tell you why. Whenever I'm watching, I just love seeing things restored. I love seeing things built, and, I, and I'm watching these different shows, and I see houses in the framing stages, and I can't help but think how God will frame us before he builds, or how I see the foundation being laid sometimes before they build upon that. And it just gets my mind working on how God builds us up spiritually while I'm watching physical houses being built. But I need you to know that when they completely renovate a house, every part of the house also gets renovated. So if I'm renovating my kitchen completely, and I'm going to gut it and then completely renovated, every part of the house will also be renovated. So when God is renovating his house, what does that mean? That means that you, being a part of his house, also needs to be restored. So that we might fit in to what God is doing. He's always doing something new. He's always up there. And he says, listen, I know you were deserted. It seemed like you were deserted. But he says, like, for, but for the Lord has called you, verse 6, for the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and wounded in spirit. A wife of one's youth when she is rejected. Heaven is saying that the heart condition of a woman in that circumstance is a great way to describe many of us spiritually. We've been promised, we've been given a home, we've been a part of a family, things were, roots were being set, things were then suddenly deserted. Suddenly it's night, suddenly the lights have shut out, suddenly we can't see any longer. But it says in verse 7, but with abundant compassion, I will take you back. I will have compassion on you with everlasting love, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Everlasting love, a love that doesn't 
fade away. It's reminding us that the season you've been in is temporary, but the reward for that temporary season is eternal. You will leave that temporary season of barrenness with a lifelong understanding of his faithfulness, with a lifelong understanding of his goodness, with a lifelong understanding of his kindness, with a lifelong understanding of his tender care. And heaven seems to think that that is worth every tear you'll ever cry. That if a tear is the price to be in the presence of God, I hope you cry more. If your grief temporarily is the thing that presses you into his lap for a season, I hope you find yourself in a heap of grief so that the great comforter might comfort you, so that you'll know just how good his comfort is. Verse 11, poor Jerusalem. Jerusalem obviously being said here in a poetical sense as well as a literal sense. As you know, a new Jerusalem is coming. You and I are part of the new Jerusalem, and so this promise is also to us. Poor Jerusalem. You, poor Jerusalem. Storm-tossed and not comforted. You've been going through some things. Last couple of years, even just on a global level, we've been going through some things, have we not? Poor Jerusalem. Storm-tossed and not comforted. But here's what he says to that. So first of all, heaven, I love this. Heaven reminds us, I know what you're going through. Because it's heaven that's saying, poor Jerusalem. It's not us saying it. <laughs> it's the spirit inspiring to say, poor Jerusalem. Letting us know that somehow we have an empathetic savior. As Hebrews says, we have a high priest who can empathize. Poor Jerusalem. Storm-tossed and not comforted, I will set your stones in black mortar. Meaning, what I'm going to do for you, he says, I know you're barren. I know you're homeless right now. I know you're cast out, but I myself am going to build something for you. He says, and I know you've seen people build homes and buildings before, but have you ever seen them built with the foundation? Wasn't cement, wasn't stone. The, the foundation was black mortar. The, the foundation was lapis lazuli, which is a precious blue gem. I will make your fortifications out of rubies, your supports will be rubies. Your gates out of sparkling stones and all of your walls out of precious stones, letting you know what I'm about to do for you is going to be so extravagant. See, we're used to only having precious jewels on our hands or on our necks. God says, I'm so extravagant, I could take those precious jewels from your neck and make it the asphalt now. It'll be the sidewalk we walk on. That's the difference. You will go from barrenness in a desert to a place where the sidewalks are paved in lapis lazuli. I don't even know what lapis lazuli, I had to look it up. What is lapis lazuli? <laughs> Praise the Lord. And he says, in that place, <laughs> it's in that place. Verse 14 is saying, in that new place that I'm going to make for you, it's in that place. Then all your children will be taught by the Lord. That which God is going to produce through you will also be instructed by the Lord because you allowed yourself to go through the season of barrenness. Now that which is going, God is going to use to come through you will also be taught by the Lord. It's bigger than you. And their prosperity will be great. 
You know how many of us are in this room because of the prayers of some great-grandparent? Their prosperity will be great. And you will be established on a foundation of righteousness. Remember, what does righteousness mean? Righteousness is not the fact that I can do everything right. I needed a Savior just like you needed a Savior. Righteousness does not mean that. Righteousness means I am covered in the blood of Christ. That's my justification. When I go into the courtroom and they put up the evidence and say, Armani, you did A, B, C, and D. We got you in 4K. We got your fingerprints. We got DNA evidence. You did it all. How would you plead? I'm still pleading not guilty. And they say, how can you plead not guilty? I say, I plead not guilty because Christ is my justification. The punishment that was supposed to be for me has been laid upon him. That's the foundation you actually want to build on. Do not trust in your intellect. Do not trust in your finances. Do not trust in your connections. Trust only in the faithfulness of God. For he is actually faithful. He is actually faithful. And you will be established on a foundation of righteousness. Do you remember how we started off this promise? Rejoice, O barren one. We're going to go from barren to being set on a foundation of righteousness that also happens to be paved in lapis lazuli. And it's letting you know that you should have all your confidence in me, your Savior, because you're worried about the one who can create weapons. But God's letting you know I'm the one who created the one who created those weapons you're afraid of. So who really has the power? Either we believe the story of Christ is true or we don't. There shouldn't be any middle ground. He is faithful. And I know we live in a world that keeps shouting at us, if he's real, our world wouldn't look like this. Oh, barren one. (laughs) Poor Jerusalem. To them, I would say, oh, poor Jerusalem. (laughs) Oh, barren one. That's okay. I know we look barren right now. But as today is the start of Advent, we are expectantly waiting for this promise to land. And we have confidence in it because the promise has already landed in our own lives has already landed in our testimonies that we have already heard. We have already seen God come in and change barrenness to abundance. We've seen it happen before, so we know he can do it. And our God yesterday is the same God today and the same God tomorrow. It's his nature. This is what he does. Verse 17, no weapon formed against you will succeed. No weapon formed against you will prosper, meaning that there are weapons. Jesus reminds us, we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities and dark powers in high places. There are actively things seeking to destroy us so that we never come into alignment with what God has. That's a whole other discussion about the fall, but the reality is that's the world we currently live in. So there are weapons being formed, but it says those weapons are being formed to destroy you, but they won't. But God says, I won't let it destroy you, but if for a season that weapon allows you to be barren, then so be it. If for a season. 
for your barrenness will be the thing that lets you know what you actually have. It's in the season of barrenness that it becomes abundantly clear where your faith actually is. And it's in that space that God can start to do surgery on your heart and unravel and reveal things that have been hidden. It's a mystery we're in. We're coming and singing songs about Jesus Christ. It's a mystery. We took communion, his body and his blood. It's a mystery. He died. But there's rumors that he rose again. It's a mystery. We don't understand it all, but we believe it. It's a mystery. Take heart, I've overcome the world. He rose. He said it's done. But that's not the end of the story. The second coming of Christ, I believe, when the world will actually see Isaiah 54. And no one will be on a different page about what God is up to. And it reminds us that that is the heritage of the Lord's servants. That they have God do things on their behalf because they have faith. Jesus is real. And I pray you get personal revelation of that in a deeper and deeper way. For the realer that is, the easier all the other promises click into place. And you, of course, you will still be confused on how can God take my barrenness and turn it into abundance, but then you remember Jesus. Well, he's done it before. He took a grave with a dead man in it, and a few days later, the dead man was no longer in it. The world's been talking about it ever since. That's the rumor that's been going around, but that's not the end of the story. The rest of the story is, is that at some point, he's coming back. And at that time, the world will know peace. And many of the things that are causing our barrenness now will be eradicated. And Scripture reminds us in Revelations that he himself will wipe the tears from our eyes. He himself. And I believe it because he has already wiped my tears before he himself. If you're barren this morning, praise God. <laughs> you have empty vessels for God to fill so that when your cup runneth over, you'll know it had to be God. Because just a little while ago, that thing was empty. It's the lady who, who had Elijah come to the crib and said, you know what, I only got a little bit of flour left. I'm going to make this and we're going to go ahead and check about this thing. But scripture shows us after that point, her food never ran low again. And she will always know it was God who did it for me. May you be blessed. May you be encouraged. May you know this is not how your story ends. Us standing at, next to caskets is not how our story ends. Us crying, us grieving, us experiencing great heartache is not how the story ends. The story ends in glorious life, in glorious resurrection of life, Overcoming death, of death having to step to the side and saying, life, okay, you win. That's how it ends. So we will cry, but we don't cry like those who don't have hope. So this Advent season, we will expectantly wait for God in every aspect of our lives, 
He is good, Lord. Let's pray together. Dear God, we love you. We need you. We need your promises. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for being the God who, who fills voids. Thank you for being the balm of Gilead who comforts us. Thank you for giving us joy where we've had sorrow. Thank you for not allowing all of these weapons that have been formed to not actually prosper. Thank you for already speaking that you're coming to get us. More, more, even more than that, you're coming to be with us in a special, special way. It's a gift and we are thankful. Each and every heart, Father, you know what they need as we go out to be your ambassadors. You know exactly what each and every heart in this room needs, and I'm standing in intercession for and with each and every heart that they would leave with a special sense of what you are calling them to specifically, how you are promising in their life and how you're going to show up in their lives so that we might war well. So as your word says, we might be strong and courageous. We need you more than we currently know how to articulate. But where words fell, we lift our spirits and our hearts to you. We want our worship and our faith to wash your feet. We want to comfort you, Jesus, God the Father. We need you. And thank you for being with us this morning. Father, grow the seeds that you've planted in our hearts this morning and in this season. And in this season, may we expectantly wait for you to show up as you always do in every aspect of our lives. And from this perspective, may we already now, even in our season of barrenness, declare that the victory is won. May we, as the, this chapter begins, start to sing aloud already. For if you spoke it, it shall happen. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.